Hello everybody and welcome to Kane and Rince Volume 10, Issue 490, Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. Joining me, Rich Davison, in Issue 490 are Leia Heydu. So, are baby Metroids like hedgehogs in New Jersey where you have to have a permit for one? Because, I, I mean, they're really cute. Well, uh, no doubt we'll find out this as we go through the recording. It's one of life's great mysteries. And also, we have uh, the returning guest, Johannes Nichel. Hello, thanks for having me again. I have no weird Metroid quote, but I'm very much looking forward to this. One of those things, really. There's not a great deal of sound bites coming out of that Game Boy, but, uh, you know, you're welcome to sing us a little ditty if you fancy that. Uh, you may remember Johannes from the uh, Street Fighter 4 show uh, way back in Volume 9, and um, it's a pleasure to have you back here. So right off the top, just to let you know that this show is only going to focus on the 1991 Game Boy original Metroid 2, Return of Samus. Uh, we don't intend to cover the AM2R fan remake or the 2017 Metroid 2 Samus Returns remake. I think Leon has perhaps some plans to cover those in the future, and they certainly deserve their own coverage, so... We'll try and sort of focus it on this 1991 original and do it justice, of course. So, starting from the top, what is Metroid 2? Uh, Bounty hunter Samus Aran faces off against the Metroid Scourge once again in the epic sequel to the NES classic Metroid. Take control to guide Samus through cavernous corridors, ancient ruins, and alien traps on the mysterious planet SR388. You'll find artifacts of a lost civilization that grant amazing powers, Cut through the creatures in a buzzsaw blur, roll through hidden tunnels, and climb sheer walls. In Metroid 2, fight at the heart of the planet and search for the merciless Metroid leaders. If you're a cunning explorer, you'll learn the best of several super endings. And that's lifted straight from the uh, the Metroid uh, website on, on the Nintendo website, of course. And I think what we'll do now is we'll issue a, a very clear spoiler warning. Very difficult to, to spoil a game that's as felt as this one, but uh, obviously it, it's pivotal to the Metroid series, so if you do have any intention of, of experiencing this for the first time, then I recommend you pause the recording and come back when you complete the game. So, in terms of who created uh, Metroid 2, we'll go through some of the credits. Uh, the Nintendo stalwart Gunpei Yokoi that everybody knows is the producer. Everybody knows that uh, Gunpei Yokoi is famous throughout the 80s and the 90s and, and has credits among many things like Super Mario Land, Tetris, um, all the way through to the, the, the mid-90s with the likes of Fire Emblem and uh, Kirby's Block Ball and Mario Tennis. The director in this case is Hiroyuki Kimura and Hiroji Kiyotake, who are both Nintendo stalwarts and associated to the Wario games and Mario Party series. The main program here is Takahiro Harada from many of Nintendo's handheld games, certainly of uh, the early 90s here when you had a, a slew of Nintendo handheld games that were ported out of the NES. Lead programmers include Isao Hirana, Masao Yamamoto, and Masaru Yamanaka. Graphics came from Hiroyuki Kimura and Hiroji Kiyotake. The sound in this case is from Ryoji Yoshimoto, who again has a lot of credits in the early 90s where, among the, the Nintendo games and the the Game Boy games themselves. In terms of the release date, this game was released in November of 1991 in North America. Who had that game first? And then yeah, following up... <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> one occasion when this happens, I'm sure. <laughs> the, the, the game was subsequently released in 1992 uh, in January. And then lastly, of course, uh, following up the rear, as is usually the case, in May 1992, it released in Europe. Reviews, uh, aggregated score of 79% from game rankings, so that's obviously taken on board many different things. 
And uh, I've, I've included this, which is something that I always like to do. Bring in from Famitsu is a nice representation of uh, how it fared in Japan, a 25 out of 40. This is a, a paraphrase of the uh, of the, the Famitsu review, but it's a good indication about how this game was received in, in Japan. Um, so I've transcribed it as a sequel to the Famicom uh, disc game masterpiece. However, probably because the result of Metroid 1 was too great, this monochrome Metroid 2 is a level down in image quality. Why play such a fun game with a Game Boy? The movement of the main character, especially the rotation jump and the continuous shooting of bullets, is sharp. Oh, that's Samus's back. It's a return of Metroid that all fans are likely to shed tears of and then blood. So you can see there that they actually recognize quite a lot of the same qualities that, that were really kind of garnered out of the, the initial release, but it's something that uh, they couldn't necessarily recommend. Struggle to get some sales figures here. I did find one from Reset Era. It said that as of December 2014, 1.72 million units were sold, which is quite really good, actually, for a, a Game Boy game. Um, since then, the digital sales on the Nintendo 3DS eStore and perhaps some of the sales that are included with some of the, I don't know, the, the packaged in, if it was a part of another title, are really difficult to come by. But I think of one thing we can be sure it did pretty well for a Nintendo handheld. So with that out of the way, let's uh, jump in. Leah, can you give us a, a brief indication about your history and your relationship with Metroid 2, please? Absolutely. I did not have much of a history with Metroid 2 because I hadn't played it until I played it for the show. I did have a Game Boy when they were new. You know, I, I guess I was probably about eight when my parents got me one for Christmas and um, never actually made it all the way around to this game. I think it was probably because I didn't have the kind of connection to the series because I didn't have an NES so I, I wouldn't have played the original Metroid at the time at least not much I might have played it at a friend's house or something uh you can listen to our other show for, on Metroid for that but um yeah I I didn't play it at the time didn't really go back to it because I'd kind of heard some middling things more representative of maybe the Famitsu article that uh that we heard a little bit from just now I wasn't especially keen to go back, but I did play the, uh, relatively recently, I played the uh, 3DS remake on my commute when, when I still had a commute and wasn't just working from home. Um, so I played that, really enjoyed it, but I had also heard that it was a pretty different game than the original Metroid 2. So I was actually pretty happy to get the chance to do it for the show because it was something I kind of had been meaning to, but it's a little bit difficult with all of the games that I uh, commit to for the podcast to kind of get back and play an original Game Boy game sometimes. Um, but I do have a uh, an original Game Boy cartridge of Metroid 2. I did not play it on my original Game Boy. What I did instead was I have a Retron 5, and that will um, take Game Boy cartridges as one of the uh, one of the, the uh, game systems that it supports. So I played it on that. So I played it on my TV. And uh, I think as a result, I will probably have slightly different things to say about the graphics and maybe a little bit about how it plays. So um, that should hopefully be interesting. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. That I played that over, I guess I started it maybe last weekend and have uh, have played it leading up to the recording. Okay, cool. So uh, my history of Metroid 2, uh, I'd, I think I might have mentioned this during the, the Metroid show. I don't actually remember 
if I've played either Metroid or, or Metroid 2 Return of Samus, that is, uh, as a child, I think. My brother had a, a Game Boy. My brother's seven years older than me, and at the point this came out, would have been six. So, like, my memory is really hazy. Whether that's because I've repressed it or just because I don't have a good memory is is debatable. But what, what I do know is that my wife actually bought me uh, a Game Boy and a copy of Metroid 2 for my 30th birthday, which is quite an interesting present. Um... I played it immediately, uh, the the only game I actually played when I, I got the Game Boy, and then probably, like, literally within about 10 minutes, bounced off of it because it's just so bleak. Um, I did play the Metroid 2 Samus Returns 3DS remake before going into this and didn't really like it, not especially very fond of it, so I had a lot of trepidation in returning back to the, the Game Boy original. Um... Like Leah, I also had a lot of kind of like ambient exposure to uh, Metroid 2 that I'd kind of osmosed through, what, 10 or so years of just absorbing videos because of it. And and like, I think it was generally perceived that it was quite a complex or an unforgiving version of, of Metroid and, and something that's largely forgotten. So I was a little bit nervous about what my experience would be. With Metroid 1, I tried to go in there earnestly and uh, start to create a map. And, and for those who were uh, listeners of that show, I'll know that I actually did go in and create a map. And unfortunately, as honest as I wanted to be in this case, this is a much more sophisticated game with a significantly more sophisticated map. So my mapping skills were really tested. And ultimately, I, I just kind of bit the bullet and went online and found a, a nice kind of uh, neat map that somebody else had done beforehand. But I did um, try to be honest towards the game and I, I didn't play it on uh, new hardware. I went back and played it on the original uh, Game Boy, the monochrome, uh, all the way through and was pleasantly surprised at not only how it handled, but just how quick it was. I was very nervous about having to pump through about a billion AA batteries. But luckily, um, we got through it a couple of times and uh, there it is. So, uh, Johannes, how about yourself? Yeah, interesting. Uh, we we all seem to have uh, pretty different experiences there. So I I did play it, uh, if not at release, then at least close to release. I remember uh, seeing the the game at the toy store where I sometimes uh, was able to procure games um, before I was actually able to buy it, and then I but I bought it relatively quickly, I think. And um, I had played Metroid 1 at a friend's place, um, but I never finished it. And then I was very happy to get Metroid 2 on my own Game Boy. And I do remember finishing it, but um, I don't remember quite well if how much I liked it. I, I, I mean, I, I did like it, but like I probably didn't have very sophisticated thoughts uh, about the game uh, back in the day due to being a child. And uh, then I... I played uh, or interacted with the game a lot uh, during the summer of 2006, probably. Yeah, would have been 2006. I made a, a task, a, a tool-assisted speedrun uh, of the game. Um, so that's uh, quite some some time ago as well now. But I do remember remember that very well because I spent like, I don't know, probably like six months uh, on, on that process, uh, recording and re-recording. It was uh, an interesting experience. It's, it's the first and only time that I did that. Um, I spent a lot of time watching uh, tool-assisted speedruns of Super Metroid and all that. And then I thought, hey, I want to I do that myself. But uh, Super Metroid is very intimidating uh, in its size compared to Metroid 2, of course. So I decided to do that game that I, I did remember from my childhood. And um, 
yeah, so I wasn't exactly playing the game, right? But I was interacting with it and uh, learning a lot of very obtuse uh, secrets about um, its gameplay and, uh, and, the, and the tech. Um, and then when I heard uh, that Metroid 2 was coming up on, on Kane and Rinse, I, I said uh, to Michiel, hey, if you, if you guys happen to need somebody uh, for that episode, I'd be up for it because I'm, I'm knowledgeable about some, some of the aspects that maybe a, a regular player would, would not know that much about. Uh, and I, I bullied my way into this, and um, <laughs> but I did replay it again uh, during the course of this week and last week. And it's interesting that Leo was talking about color because I played it on three systems. Um, I have two cartridges of the game. One is the the regular uh, Game Boy cartridge. Um, I recently got a, got it off of eBay. Uh, my original got lost to to time. And then I got a second cartridge, uh, which I just stumbled upon on eBay, which is uh, a custom, uh, probably 3D printed cartridge um, with a color hack ROM on it. So there was there was never an official Game Boy Color release of this. So Leah, what you saw was probably just the Super Game Boy functionality. So yeah, that's what four, I figured. Four four colors, right? I think and so, this, yes. Yeah, and this this Game Boy Color hack, which is a so it's a fan hack ROM uh, that somebody downloaded and put on that that physical cartridge uh, that has sixteen colors, I guess. And that's, I was playing. That's that coloration, that Game Boy. Looking at yeah. some of these images in in preparation for the show as well. That is a, a really beautiful looking game for the mm-hmm. the Game Boy, and, and what a shame that it never actually made a legitimate release. Yeah, true. Uh, I played that on a Game Boy Advance with an IPS backlit panel. So probably the the most colorful and vibrant version that you can play on, on actual hardware. Uh, it was very interesting. I, I was kind of afraid that the uh, the immersion that you get in the, the monochrome world uh, w- would be gone, but I was immediately immersed in it. It's a very interesting way to play it. I guess it's technically piracy to to get that uh, get that hacked uh, cartridge, so I'm not endorsing it. But it does exist, and it was actually uh, a lot cheaper than getting the original uh, Metroid Two cartridge. So it was like 15 euros compared to maybe 50 for the for the original. And I also got a custom printed box for it. Uh, so it's not an original box, but it's completely mint. Uh, it looks very, very beautiful. So yeah, uh, the wonders of eBay. Uh, very interesting. So the development of Metroid 2, I was clearly and, and obviously developed after uh, the the original game was released in, in 1986. And it was developed by the, the now kind of, you know, lauded development internal studio within uh, Nintendo, Nintendo R&D 1. The kind of driving ambition of the game was to create a new high point for handheld games uh, with graphics that rival the 8-bit consoles and I think we'll get into graphics as we go along but it's it's evident that that was something that was driving them and and part of the mission statement as well as this Metroid 2 was to take advantage of the cartridge's built-in battery which allowed the game to save and uh, is something that's kind of instrumental as part of Metroid going forward I guess like the first question Lee I'm going to put this to yourself like 
what do you think about the idea of of Nintendo bringing more like long form based like exploration to to handhelds in the way that we had with the likes of Link's Awakening in ninety two I believe we had Kid Icarus in nineteen ninety one and Final Fantasy uh, I can't remember what the name is Final Fantasy Legends is it Yes, it's Final Fantasy Legend and Pokemon too. Uh, Quite yeah i I think it's super ambitious, especially with these kind of earlier games. I mean, Pokemon wasn't until what, like ninety seven, ninety eight. Um, mm. but way back in 91, we're putting something on there that is not going to just take you one sitting. It's, it's not just something that kind of you throw at your kid in the backseat of the car and say, okay, here, entertain yourself on this car ride because you're not going to be able to finish the game if you can't actually save it. So I, I think that, um, I, I mean, they, they kind of started a trend, right? Like I, it's, it's tough to find even today sometimes i am very much a jrpg person and there are not a ton of really good experiences on handheld systems just i mean we uh, switch excluded because it's not solely a handheld system but it's it's even just now like the the 3DS and the vita are odd for that because it, playing something on a handheld, playing a longer game on a handheld is really not the same as playing it on a a console in, in that way. So the design isn't going to work if you just take something that was on a console and say, okay, well, now you can play it on a handheld. I mean, you could do that and technically it would work, but it's going to be a lot more awkward because I don't think that most people are going to be sitting down for extended stretches of time if they have other options available. And uh, a lot of people, I think, who are playing those kind of games probably would. But way back in in 1991, when this was released, it's it's a different thing, right? Because they hadn't really drawn all of those lines yet. They hadn't kind of established that this is how it works with the handheld systems and this is how it works with the consoles. There was still a lot of wiggle room there. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess... I guess it's um it, it's interesting in that they were still experimenting it, it seems like at that point. Yeah. I think it was especially interesting uh to replay it nowadays uh on an actual Game Boy when you're so used to when you're playing something on a mobile system be it a Switch or a phone or whatever you can just suspend the thing or you can uh you know go to your uh, home screen or whatever. But now on on an original Game Boy, you have to actually think about battery life, uh, which you totally don't <laughs> yeah. have to do anymore with with anything, right? And then you're playing, and uh, you actually need to find a save point, otherwise your progress is going to be lost. That was yeah. that was super super fascinating. It, it, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we've covered the idea that 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 concept of a use case of something that needs to be completed within a like a short space of time really perhaps didn't necessarily exist at that point. Well, maybe it did because the likes of you know, Tetris that came out really had a very sort of, it wasn't exactly a long experience and the likes of Super Mario Land you could complete within a certain length of time. But it seems to me that there's a real push for Nintendo to start sweating the asset a bit and starting to work out how they could uh, encourage people to play more long form. But, you know, when you start doing that, you really have to consider the likes of, of saving. And I think when you encourage a, a game that's long enough to save, it really starts to impede upon some of the original design of the likes of, of Metroid because that game is, is seen to be exceptionally difficult. And in reality, it, it's not necessarily difficult. It's just not built for like long periods of play. 
how long the beat has um, Metroid 2 at about five and a half hours. And I suppose that's about right if you have some semblance of what you're doing. But you can't sit down for five and a half hours in one go and, and play through this game in, in the way that it's intended to be. And I think the certain design features of the game as well, which make it quite impossible to do within like a like a specific space and a specific time. So I, I, I just wonder to what extent something like this really kind of harms a lot of people's perceptions of the likes of Metroid 2. You know, it, it's not a natural handheld game of the time. It, it's a much longer experience. And, you know, do you think to some extent it, it sort of prevents people from wanting to pick the game up and play it in the intended way? It could certainly. I um that that how long to beat time. That's about what it took me. A little bit less, but I had a map. So if I had been playing this in you know in in the release window, I probably wouldn't have, and it would have been a much more drawn out experience to kind of look around and find things. So I I that's the most generic sentence ever look around and find things yep <laughs> video games um but but yeah i i i think that it it might have it might have gotten a little bit of negative press because of that um just because it was a departure from the original game and because yeah i mean i i don't think that it was especially difficult there are certainly some difficult sections but the fact that you do need to either be mapping things out in your head or have a map or, you know, you need to you need to be remembering stuff or you're going to be bumbling around a lot. And yeah. I, I imagine that a lot of people were. Um, yeah, it, it, I can see how that would be confusing because people were not used to that, particularly not on a handheld console yet. Yeah, and I, I would argue that it certainly hurts it in, in retrospect as well. It's a much more sort of unappealing prospect in 2021 to go back to this game certainly when metroid 2 uh samus returns and the 3ds exists and it's a lot more kind of user friendly a lot more focused and certainly a lot more kind of uh simple in terms of actually picking up and, and obtaining and getting getting a hold of but um i, I mean it, it, it's really interesting that you, you brought up the map and we'll come on to the the setting and the plot in a moment and, and the map actually the, the the planet itself is kind of pivotal to that but we'll seg kind of gently onto the scenario so this is from the, the Metroid 2 manual, paraphrased once more. It says, Following the events of Metroid on the NES that saw Samus defeat the evil Mother Brain and Space Pirates, the Galactic Federation noted the terrible destructive force of the Metroid lifeform and sent another research ship to SR-388 to be sure that there are no more Metroids left on the planet. After receiving an emergency note from the research base that the ship was missing, a special combat group was assembled and dispatched to SR-388, though were never heard of again after landing. The Federation was positive that the Metroid must still survive below the surface of the planet. Fearful that even one Metroid could easily wipe out the entire planetary civilization, the Galactic Federation gave the order to exterminate the Metroids to Samus Aran. So, it occurs to me that all of the plot is is kind of administered through the, the manual, and I don't know about you guys, but uh, I don't have any Game Boy manuals in 2021 for the games that I've got, and I'm pretty sure in 1992 I had no Game Boy uh, manuals from here, and, and I think it's just one of those situations where picking up the game with in, in a vacuum without some of the surrounding material, does the game really do a good job of expressing some of the backstory, and, and is it clear from the opening few moments, exactly what you need to do. In Metroid 1, for example, it was a very similar story where you didn't have any kind of uh, sort of warm opening, but there was a single page on the on the splash screen that kind of gave you some context about what's going on. But 
in Samus Returns, it's excuse me, in the Return of Samus, it certainly doesn't do do the same job. So I guess you know, it, is it necessary? Number one, and does the game kind of as you go through really do a good job of kind of piecing together a narrative? And and I guess for that matter, uh, is the story important? So I just I just got up from my <clears throat> from my seat and got my Metroid Two uh, instruction booklet from that uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, printed a uh, new box that I was talking about earlier and it's it's beautiful I don't know if I, I probably didn't care about it as a kid I don't re- didn't, don't remember any thinking about that story uh, back in the day in hindsight it's one of those situations though is it not where this story really kicks off Super Metroid and it further does, yeah. kind of feeds into Metroid Fusion and as of recording Metroid Dread was released yesterday and it is as important to that plot from the four or five hours that I've played so far and so it's one of those situations where for a Game Boy game it's interesting that they have so much kind of um, a legacy kind of ingrained into this game that really has fed into the the subsequent games that have came downstream and and we're not just talking games for the sake of games. Like Super Metroid is like a sacred cow to a lot of people. So it's interesting, really, that for a game that has such a pivotal part of the story, it's just so uh, not present in the game and and certainly not delivered. And maybe that's perhaps a, a limitation of the hardware or or what have you. But we'll we'll probably never know. Yeah, I mean, it it really doesn't. I, but to answer the the other part of your question, I don't think it actually matters that much in the context of just this game. Um, in the overall story, yes, absolutely. Uh, and there's, I watched some stuff. I, there's a, I think it's an IGN video that is uh, like the uh, the history of Metroid and and kind of how all the games fit together. Uh, that was pretty interesting. But in 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 uh, this particular title, like you don't even get an explanation of what's on your screen like you you can pause and see that there's you know x number of metroids in the area that you are but i mean do you really know why that you have to get x number of them out of the way before you can move on to the next area or it's i don't know there's it's it, it doesn't do a great job of articulating what it is that you're screen is telling you uh, at, at least in the beginning i mean i think you can probably figure it out pretty easily but um yeah without without a map and without really any kind of instructions or um god knows there's no tutorials or anything they i it uh it's a little um I, I, and i think it relies a little bit as well on maybe you having a little bit of metroid knowledge already because otherwise how are you going to know that hitting the select button is what gets you into the missile mode you know it's i i don't know i i think that there's a lot of trial and error possible in the first hour or so of the game especially if you don't have the background of the original metroid on the nes yeah i think we'll come to some some thoughts on uh, well some of my thoughts certainly on on why that might be the case and not to kind of lead into that too much. Um, it's just one of those things. Like something that I have to remind myself is like, you know, you, you came across it. Like, did it really matter? I suppose it, it's of a, a time and space where it possibly didn't. Like, it, not just because of the game itself, but because of games as a whole and, and where they were in the term, in terms yeah. of like the kind of cultural significance or the I, kind of. I think if you prevalence. were playing the game back in the day, you probably wouldn't have cared much. 
right? Uh, uh, even if yeah. you read, even if you read the manual, uh, there's like four pages of story in the beginning. You read that and then you play the game, right? It's it's a bit disconnected, I would say. For sure. Well, I think what I've really tried to do in the next section is really kind of, in the absence of like an actual narrative, I think the planet itself serves as a, a scenario and a setting that really adds a little bit of, um, yeah, like meat to that bone and give it a bit of sort of flavor, a little bit of um, actual material that the, the player can get a hold of. And um, you, you as Samus, are kind of put on the surface, as you would do in pretty much every other Metroid, with the exception of Metroid Dread, uh, again, released yesterday. And um, SR388 is the, the planet in which you kind of need to infiltrate. So what is SR388? It's a cavernous and complicated structure of muddy-layered domes and spaces, in which it contains an ancient ruins of the unknown civilization, which we now know to be the, the Chozo, prevalent in Metroid throughout the entire series. The planet itself features walls that are destroyable and hidden passages that don't require destruction. So there's quite a lot of the kind of uh, unorthodox exploration that you have in the original Metroid with walls that either need to be bombed or, or just walk through. So, you know, it's it's slightly unconventional way of, of playing a game in 2021, but it's something that kind of must have been pervasive at the time. Within each of the domes, there are Metroids, and Samus's uh, plan, of course, is to eradicate the Metroids, and uh, connecting these domes, well, let's use that, is um, a series of tunnels that are filled with a, a, a toxic or a noxious liquid. Uh, it's not quite clear if it's water or if it's lava. Certainly on the Game Boy originally, it didn't have any colour, so there's no way to do that, but one thing we are certain of is that it's dangerous. In order to get the water to recede, though, Samus must defeat the Metroids, and that is Samus's key to progress. As the player descends deeper into SR388, the, the Metroid evolutions become more severe and much more sophisticated, and uh, it becomes a slightly more difficult prospect. And uh, finally, we kind of probably need to know that Mother Brain is, is not a thing in Samus, uh, Metroid 2, The Return of Samus, and nor is the countdown sequence that's become something that's a stable of the series. So I think just in general, the, the first thing I want to say is like the, the planet itself... Do you think it's representative of the rest of the series? Do you think it's something that works? Or is it something that is almost harmful to the, the kind of... Well, it, that seems to be a bit of a leading question because it, it's never been reproduced. But I'm interested in your thoughts on what you think of the planet itself. So, Johannes, I don't know if you've got any thoughts. Uh, it certainly leaves a very different impression from the other games. Uh, a big part of that might be that it's black and white and looks even more same-ish than uh than even what metroid one did and certainly more than the than the later games and also the that that overall progression with the the subsequent earthquakes um that that led you deep let you deeper into the into the planet it's more of a um the, the whole conceit, thing really yeah, it's and the the whole thing is connected, right? It's uh, there's no distinction into uh, Brinstar and um, Norfair, etc. It, it all looks like one interconnected area with no uh, distinct biomes, uh, so to speak. But it it left a a pretty different impression on me, at least. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Did you find the planet SR388 to be something that was easily navigatable? Uh, so I, I didn't think that it was too obtuse. And 
what I'll say about that is I think they did a better job differentiating some of the different rooms than the NES Metroid did, where you just kind of have very lengthy hallways and or uh, shafts that are that look very similar aside from the color. Um, I I don't know. I I like I said, I did play it with a map, and I think that I would have probably gotten frustrated relatively quickly. If I did not have map, um, but that was not as much for navigating the planet as it was really for knowing things like where is the nearest health refill and where can I refill my missiles and that kind of thing. I I mean, it's, it's definitely a, an alien influence thing, right? Well, I guess aliens, because... Metroid 1 came out in 86, and so did Aliens, and you are, you know, you've got SR388, and you've got, what is it, L LV472? Am I remembering correctly? Um, 426, sorry. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they want you to think about that. They want you to see that there are a bunch of hostile creatures on this planet, or even if they're not hostile, dangerous creatures on this planet that basically everything around you wants to kill you and the lava is part of that i read it as lava i don't think it was actually i don't think it had a color in the colorized version that i played either i mean it, it had a color but i don't think that it was indicative necessarily of what the liquid was i just i assumed lava but yeah yeah i i think that um it's it has a bit more character to me than the first game um but also it's I don't know. It's it's not quite at the level where the uh, where the later games will get. Yeah, I, I look at it as a sort of an interesting experiment, and I, I have to admit the kind of interconnecting corridors that move between the the, the sort of domes and the chambers are, to me, exceptionally frustrating and almost like impossible to navigate through. So without a map, I can't imagine how frustrating it would be. And I come back to my anecdote at the beginning that. I tried to map it out in, in the way that I did with Metroid 1 and I found it to be almost utterly impossible because it is a much more sophisticated type of topography. Like, things move in a diagonal plane, whereas in Metroid 1, the, the map tends to move in the cardinal directions and has a very kind of um, clear and consistent sort of, uh, I guess, like an aesthetic. With um, SR388, though, it's just it it feels like a planet and it certainly does feel like you're descending through the planet it's just that it's a a slightly unusual way about going about it and the 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 dropping of the lava seems to me to be a much less sophisticated sort of method of gating the player than what we now know to be the traditional gear gating of a, a metroidvania where you have certain techniques that allow you to transcend or move to different places so I'm I'm pleased that this hasn't necessarily persisted throughout the series, but certainly it doesn't hurt that it's in this particular game. It's just something that perhaps, you know, they learned the lesson as they've went through. I kind of liked the lava, th the, uh, or liquid, whatever it is. Uh, I, I kind of liked that mechanic. It, it felt, it felt to me like you were making definitive progress. And I am a big fan of the later style of what, I mean, we'll commonly refer to as Metroidvanias. Uh, I think everybody would probably know what I mean when I say that. I, I I am a big fan of that style of game, so it's it's not that I don't like that and think that this is better, but I I really do like that you can kind of check things off 
the list almost. Like if you have destroyed enough Metroids that you get the little earthquake and the lava goes down, then you have made definitive progress towards where whatever it is that you're going for. At, at that point, you probably don't even know what it is that you're going for, but uh, you're you're getting lower mm. into the planet. So I I think that's that's kind of neat for me. Uh, I, I must admit, I mean, it, I, you know, you're right. It feels necessary because I can't imagine how frustrating this game would be without some kind of way of limiting the player's exploration. Exploration. It would be nearly. <laughs> not nearly impossible it would certainly be unpleasant to try and actually go through there and try and sort of work out where yeah. all the metroids are in one area in one time it's also very linear in that regard right quite certainly as the game goes through almost about probably about two-thirds of the way through the game it, it's like the premise of of going through these chambers with multiple areas just drops entirely and then you end up following what is essentially a very clear and linear route and i wonder if that's a constraint of the development or if they just felt that it might not be something that a player would perhaps enjoy i I know certainly when you get out of that particular patch that's a point where i'm like okay this starts to feel a little bit more slick and a much more pleasant experience rather Mm. than having to work out where things are it's also interesting that in in speedrunning um there's only one major sequence break that you can do so one of the the later uh lava liquid whatever drops um you can go through that flooded area um, before you you drop the the liquid level. Um, it's one of the the shorter ones. Uh, through the the other ones you can't go through because they're just too long. You you, mm. you can't survive it. Uh, only towards the end that that single one and that's the the only sequence break you can do without uh, going into glitches. No, interesting. Okay, I mean mm. it, it, this is this is really interesting to me, of course, because it doesn't feel like a natural eagervania metroidvania in that sense because there doesn't appear to be much sort of fat on the bone if you will there's not a great deal to chop out when you're going through so yeah Yeah, i'll I'll certainly check that out yeah and also but if you do that sequence break um it just works right Uh, it's not it's not like i don't know the uh, metroids there uh, don't spawn or something there's nothing like that so if you if you can get there then it still it still works perfectly Good stuff. As the player goes through SR388 exterminating the Metroids, uh, the the player essentially meets more and more sophisticated evolutions of the Metroid, and it finds itself uh, in a position where Samus accomplishes a mission, taking on the the Metroid Queen, and unexpectedly returns with a Metroid hatchling in tow. Uh, Samus is the first creature that the Metroid hatchling sees, and therefore believes it to be her mother. And this is something that's like imperative throughout the rest of the story. Can I? I have to ask. For me, when I was playing the game for the first time, it 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 is presented to you in a in the way that it's almost evident that the Metroid's following the person. But do you feel that it's a like a plot beat that's clearly demonstrated, or is it something that perhaps it was slightly confusing and in the way it was for me? I I I thought it read pretty clearly. Uh, that hey, th- I mean, it, maybe not explicitly. Hey, you're my mother, but it, you know that maybe you saved this metroid for some reason you know it 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 is it's not trying to attack you it's moving obstacles out of your way so yeah i i i thought i was okay with this part yeah i i felt so as well i mean you just killed its mom and now you're taking her <laughs> place so absolutely it, yeah it made sense yeah it's the circle of life really isn't it mm-hmm. so Beautiful. the the endings of of metroid uh 
the Metroid 2 Return of Samus are in much the same way as Metroid 1 dictated by uh, how fast the player is able to negotiate through the game and complete it. Um, in the the weakest ending, Sam- Samus runs throughout the credits and jumps high and lands, and that's it. And if the player took seven or more hours to complete, that is what they're likely to get. If the player took between five to seven hours, Samu- Samus keeps on running, uh, which is a, a lovely reward. If the player took between three to five hours, Samus will simply stand still. And of course, if the player took less than three hours, Samus will be without her armor, releasing her hair into the wind, and she'll be seen in a tank top and underwear as a nice, salacious treat for those who are inclined to go through and speedrun. Well, I mean, it's no bikini, but I guess it'll do. I think uh, you make you make do with what you can on, on the Game Boy, <laughs> I'm sure. I'd love to know yeah. what my completion time back in the day was on when I originally played it, but no idea, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I did go through and do a speedrun, two hours and four minutes, and it was a very challenging speedrun for me. I realized that I'm nowhere near the actual uh, real-time speedrun that's uh, on on speedrun.com, but in this case, I was very pleased with my speedrun. Um, there's not a great deal to chop out of the game when you're yeah. going through it, but if you know what you're it's, doing and you know... It's all optimization, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the links between... Uh, Metroid 2 and the film Aliens and I have an extract here from the Metroid wiki which says both involve female protagonists, in this case the distinction between Ellen Ripley and Samus traveling to the homeworld of the alien specimens to exterminate them, both depict a final battle with the queen of the creatures and both depict the female protagonist bonding with the child uh, that is something that's kind of irrefutable and it's I suppose like if Metroid 1 cribbed from Alien it seems only right that Metroid 2 Return of Samus cribs from Aliens <laughs> totally so let's kind of move past the the plot such as it is and, and have a look at, at the map i mean i'm going to start off with a, a fairly basic question is using a map necessary for metroid 2 i mean there's always going to be that person who wants the challenge of um of mapping it out for themselves or uh for just kind of finding their way through um for me i did not want that particular challenge uh it it just it was not something that appealed to me so i i did use a map i if the game itself had had a map built in i might not have i might have continued to uh to kind of just get make my own way through but um but yeah given that it did not i don't have that kind of spatial memory so no i did not interesting maybe it's not necessary for this game because there's no backtracking Except for going back to the, going back to the main uh, shaft with the with the liquid, right? That's that's as far as you backtrack. So in a sense, it might be easier. And I'm just looking at the at the instruction booklet again. There is a very crude map in there. Um, it's very much not to scale. It's super weird, and it cuts off after maybe 50% of the of the top uh, of the map. So there's a little little help in there to get you started. Uh yeah, you you have to you have to look at this. Uh, I can send you a scan or something. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, I've seen the map and and you know, I, I was a big fan of the the manual in Metroid 1 not only because it was like beautiful to look at, but obviously it was a, a rich source of information for a game that was otherwise incredibly lean. Um I I have to say I I don't think this game is particularly very friendly to play without a map. I think there's limitations of the hardware which require a map to 
to to sort of be available um the i did find myself kind of backtracking whether it's partially out of maybe just underconfidence or what have you by needing to go back and refill missiles and buy energy tanks and so without a map to do that it would have been incredibly difficult the other thing about it is it feels like an impossible geography it almost feels like areas loop in and around one another through that central corridor in such a way that they couldn't exist on a 2d plane which makes it really difficult to kind of get a sense of where it is that you're going and i would go so far as to say that metro 2 was perhaps designed with that kind of real uh, sort of enthusiasm for like supporting documents that come out of the likes of nintendo power and, and all of the magazines of the time as a means to try and sort of drive customers and consumers towards sort of some ambient products that that do support that although i've I've got a link in the show notes here to the metroid uh to nintendo power map and it, it's it's truly dreadful like absolutely <laughs> awful dreadful because <laughs> metroid well, da, 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 da. brilliant yeah, thank you um <laughs> The map that I used, um, which Rich was the map you linked me, um, was, I, I mean, it, it, it kind of takes that into account, right? Because it, when you go into a different dome, uh, if we're calling them that, you, it kind of breaks off into a separate section and has yeah. like a note on the map that this is where it's going because it's, and the, the comparison that I made was it's like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. This can't actually exist. So we're just going to make it mm. this way so that you can kind of uh see see each section as uh as it's useful to see it on on paper for you to be able to make your way through mhm i think for me this game clearly could have benefited from the kind of series st- stable elevators that connect two areas with one another just to be able to create something of a distinction because another big problem with the map as far as i'm concerned is that the palette and the the actual tiles don't necessarily change in, in much of a way between the areas to give you a sense of where it is that you are and, and where you're going in relation to other places. So it's telling to me that they didn't return to this particular format. And even when not only did the the kind of power of the Super Nintendo come in, they, they kept that, but even when it went to 3D and Metroid Prime, they still kept those sequences in as a means to try and sort of help the customer, dis- customer as help the con- uh the the player distinguish between when they were moving from one area and, and to another and it's it's still very easy to get lost uh, in in this map and um there are a couple of instances maybe maybe it was just one but maybe maybe it was more than that where um you'd have one way uh, passages um where if you want to go back you'd have to go all the way around again that was uh that was super confusing there's this yeah. In a, I have no idea what the yeah, the areas don't have names, right? There's this this one area where you you jump out of it and you transition to the to the next screen to the screen above it, and the floor is just spikes and you can't go back. Things like yep. that are very confusing. It's it's yeah. So the, there's there's definitely as the game goes into like a, a more linear mode, there's there's some quirks of the map that there's that kind of chamber which is almost like a a large circular chamber with a lower level and an upper level and then two transitionary levels that move between the the, or the lower and the upper level and you have to essentially go to the upper level fight one of the metroids then go counterclockwise or clockwise back around the other way Mm -hmm. only to find another metroid and it's just incredibly confusing because there's no 
logic, there's no intelligence behind the game that would allow you to understand that you needed to do that. So the way that they did that, I think it's it's interesting that they're kind of flexing what the the asset does and the the sort of playing around in the world that they've built. But it's it's not good. It's really confusing. Yeah. The other instance of this that I think was just an absolute like terrible idea was there's there's a single instance in the entire game where you have to crawl through like a mandatory instance where you have to crawl through a Metroid carabus in order to reach a necessary boss. And excuse that, me, like, did you did you say crawl? Uh, excuse me, <laughs> roll through, spider ball through um, a Metroid Carabas. And it's just crazy. Like it, it, at no other point in the game are you required yeah. to do this. And I think it's one of those game, games where perhaps they, they're like, look, we expect our players to, to go through here and try every single permeation of what's possible. Um, strange decision. Well, you think about it. I mean, the, the original Metroid did have some of that as well. You know, you had places where you just kind of had to bomb the floor until you find what uh what place will actually bomb open um i i i can kind of understand it but yeah it 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 did get a little bit frustrating or it could have if i i mean i was using the map so it didn't for me but uh i can i can see how it would have gotten frustrating uh for something like that where you have to uh get go through i, mean, a, a, <laughs> I just wanted to say crawl of, really bad a combination <laughs> of some bizarre game choices and and a lack of the the total absence of a map to me suggests mm-hmm. that perhaps they were trying to in, in not too dissimilar to the likes of Simon's Quest like really drive people towards a, a scenario where they need to kind of go away and and source the the solution through whatever means possible but you um, mentioned purely stuff speculation like, of course yeah you mentioned stuff like um you know Super Mario Land and Tetris uh being games that were intended for shorter play sessions and that's absolutely true but in the case of tetris particularly uh and me with super mario land because god knows how many times i played that game it was a lot but um in the case of something like tetris you know you're gonna keep going back to it and they needed a a reason to get you going back to this and I, i think this is maybe one of those value for money type of things like if you had just been able to burn through the game once in two hours and that's it i think there would have been a lot of at the time probably parents mostly who would have been really upset about that um so yeah i i i get what they were trying to do it maybe doesn't translate too well into a modern context but um it's you know it's kind of understandable, I it, guess. It makes it makes sense, right? Because the yeah. the gameplay itself was not that challenging. Like uh, most of the the Metroid fights, I guess, are the the hardest parts of that. Um, you have so many missiles, you have so much health. There's not too terribly much of a challenge uh, in in the rest of the game, right? So the the challenge had to come from somewhere. That's probably what somebody decided. Quite. So yeah. they said, I, I re- "Okay, let's let's make the map confusing." And, yeah. <laughs> I remember when I first started the game, the the movement of the enemies themselves is not. It's not like Metroid One. Like they are not most of the time. They are not trying to track you, or um, their patterns are not as complex they're not as difficult to get around and i remember thinking this is just easy like they're just sitting there why <laughs> i mean it gets a little bit more annoying towards the end but yeah there's the the enemy the enemy ai maybe 
is not if it's, if you even want to call it that i guess but uh, the enemy uh movement i did not find to be as um I'm not sure what word I want because engaging isn't quite it, but frustrating isn't quite it either. It was just um, less complex, I think, is, is probably yeah. what I want. I think we'll, we'll possibly come to have a chat about what that means for us when we, we come to the gameplay. But, um, you know, I agree entirely. It's not a particularly very difficult game. I think that I don't think Metroid 1 is an especially difficult game, but it's engineered in such a way that it's difficult because of the, the absence of saving and that kind of momentum that you must build as you go through the game because it's very difficult to, to farm and in that regards metroid 2 is, is equally as punitive like there are so few drops of of enemy missiles and such that it, it seems pointless i think in the entirety of the game when i last played across the course of about two hours and four minutes i got like two missile drops through the entire thing so yeah not a especially challenging game but it's it's perhaps some of the conceits that have came out of uh out of the the game design and in, in that mm. regards one thing that kind of fits in with that is um th this is something that stuck in my mind was the they have the similar pipes that spit out enemies as they do in Metroid 1 um but they're they're finite like you can only kill i counted it's 10 enemies per pipe and then the pipe shuts off so like you can't even farm for missiles or for health or whatever in in the same way that you might be able to in Metroid 1 because your your resources are a little bit more limited that way so yeah it's mm. uh, something that definitely goes along with that particular uh um thought moving on to the the game design itself now we we've sort of touched on the the way in which the the monochrome graphics don't necessarily create a, a very friendly environment but i think uh, the 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 game design itself is quite strong, and and obviously the 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 Game Boy itself is brought about by its limitations. Some things that have permeated across the Metroid series, and something that's that's really uh, kind of fundamental in the uh, obvious story of Samus's design. So there's a uh, an extract here from the IGN presents the history of Metroid that I've captured. It says the Game Boy's black and white graphics resulted in changes to Samus's gear that ultimately became permanent. In the original Metroid, colour was used to differentiate between Samus's power suit and her Varia suit, an upgraded version. However, without colour of the Game Boy, the two suits would have appeared similar, requiring developers to develop a visual indicator for the players to determine which suit Samus is wearing. They also updated her Varia suit, adding round metal shoulders that have been a part of the suit in every game in the series since then. So, obviously, without colour, I think there is a... It seems to me that there's almost a need for the game to change in the absence of color, and one of the ways in which it does that is it totally changes the perspective. This game has a much more, like significantly more zoomed in perspective than what Metroid wonders and Super Metroid and every game that that follows thereafter that. And so it seems that there's this really interesting trade-off between what are some very very complicated graphics as part of Metroid Two mixed with some really complex gameplay decisions that have fallen out after that. So I guess one of the questions that I've got is, does anybody feel that that zoomed-in perspective really hurt the game, or did it make it better in some capacity? So I played it on a larger screen, um, but it's the same screen that I played my latest Metroid 1 playthrough uh, on, so I, I, I guess that probably doesn't uh, hurt my perspective too much. It for me, I I felt that it was fine. I didn't have a problem. It it is it is different, and it does take a little bit of getting used to. But 
I, I, the larger sprites were kind of nice because they allowed for more detail. They looked really nice, uh, e- even blown up onto a big screen. They, uh, they kind of retained a look that was, um, I-, I feel like it aged pretty well. And, um, yeah, I, I thought that, um, it wasn't especially, I, I mean, I, I am not sure. I haven't looked at a map of, uh, the map from Metroid 1 next to a map of Metroid 2. I don't know if it's bigger or the same size, but it kind of feels bigger since you're only seeing a smaller amount of the screen at once, if if that makes sense, or a smaller amount of the scene at once, perhaps, on your screen. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it, but I can see how, especially on a smaller screen, that might be a, a bit different. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bit jarring. Um, I guess it, it, it helps with uh, immersion and that, that sense of isolation and claustrophobia. Um, if that so if that's what you're going for if, or if you you like that kind of thing then i guess the zoomed in perspective uh, actually supports the game but from a gameplay uh, perspective yeah it's a bit weird especially if you have uh things like the the alpha metroids not moving as soon as they're off screen and you only have to walk a couple steps for for that to happen things like that uh are a bit weird and probably just due to technical limitations anyways. But yeah, the Samus sprite, uh, it does look great. It, it's it's interesting because I think with the, the zoomed in perspective comes a few problems, certainly for me. Mm. There's a lot of like leaps of faith jumping into darkness without really sure. any sense of what's coming ahead. And, and that, that is a, a, a very tired gameplay uh, mechanic that I have no affection for whatsoever. But um, you know, like th- this game is also very different in terms of the topography than it, than Metroid One is, as we mentioned a bit earlier. Um, it's much more vertical and much more um, spacious, let's say, despite the the weird zoomed in perspective. There's a lot of like dead space that really has no nothing to interact with and and move around with. And as we come to talk about the actual gameplay mechanics, I'll perhaps sort of lean into some of my feelings about how I felt about that. We um, earlier mentioned the Game Boy Color and the use of color in the game. And I've got a, a quote here from the Metroid Database interview with, with Dan Housen of Metroid of America, in which he says, Nintendo R&D 1 was involved with developing the Game Boy Color, successor to the original Game Boy with a color screen. Nintendo of America's Dan Housen noted that Nintendo R&D 1 included a special Metroid palette in the Game Boy Color's hardware, which makes Metroid 2 look really, really nice on the Game Boy Color remarking that this made the game's graphics comparable to the original Metroid on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, I don't think that... Um, I think he's perhaps being a bit modest there. I've seen some of the images of the, the Game Boy Color palette version, and I think it's like an exceptionally beautiful and attractive-looking game. I don't have a, a ROM of, of this, unfortunately, so this is something that I never had an opportunity to play. But, Yanis, you mentioned that you, you've played it what i'm interested in is whether or not they're able to kind of leverage some of the the tech behind the game boy color that to to make the the map and the visuals a little bit more um recognizable so uh, in games like pokemon for example you move between one town and another and it'll change the palette which gives you a very distinct feeling of, of one area to the other do they do anything this sophisticated with, with metroid um, 2 good good question i'm not sure exactly um what this this version i think it's a different version from the one that that i was playing 
I see. Um, so this version probably does uh, palette swaps, and the version that I have has an extended palette. Um, so I'm not exactly sure. So the 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 version that I played, um, it has the, the for example the Samus colors uh, that you would expecting with the the red and yellow uh, etc. Um, and it has distinct uh, palettes for the let's call them biomes or zones or whatever. Um, but it does have some technical issues because the the performance does drop when you're when you're sh- switching screens. So as soon as, soon mm. as you do a flick screen, you can see some sprites still being swapped out um, after you you change screens, which does not happen in the uh, on the original ROM. Um, this is yeah. so, this is very true, and and I think this is something that that is exceptionally impressive to me while playing the the Game Boy cartridge version. This game is incredibly stable, like yeah. very very beautiful to behold, and the animation for a Game Boy game is is so slick like it's so impressive and it doesn't frame drop in the same way that uh the original metroid did so from my perspective it's a much more pleasant experience to play and a much more consistent experience as well which makes it infinitely more replayable than i don't want to say metroid one but certainly a more appealing proposition than return to metroid one which is a little bit janky and a little bit um rng heavy in that regard This is the first instance of, of Samus's ship uh, appearing in a Metroid game, uh, in the second instance, and uh, of course it follows a lot of the same uh, aesthetic as Samus's Chozo suit that's become a staple of the, the series. The, the ship itself is a source of me- missiles and, and of energy as well, which is something that's always pleasant. Moving on to the enemy design. I think this is the first instance of, of a Metroid game which demonstrates that the Metroids are like a galactic threat to um, the, the Federation, and uh, we know that the, the Metroids have a, a, a life cycle, and they evolve between uh, Alpha Metroid all the way to the Metroid Queen, and throughout the game, the player will encounter some of these. Samus is tasked with destroying all 58 of the Metroids, which is not a great deal for a, an entire planet, but uh, it is a Game Boy game, of course. Leah, do you have any strong thoughts on the the uh, the design of the Metroid and the life cycle? It's interesting that they didn't really keep up with having Metroids. These are not what you think of when you think of a Metroid, right? Like, there are those towards the end. Um, There's, like, a corridor full of very fast-moving OG Metroids. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure... I, I don't I really don't remember a lot of stuff from like Prime, for example, but uh I, I'm sure that these do show up in other places, these these particular designs. But they're not it's it's interesting that you kind of have an evolution of the Metroid, right? So you've got the the smaller ones that you run into, the alpha Metroids that you run into, and then you get bigger Metroids and bigger Metroids, and then by the end they're super scary and you have this dragon-shaped Metroid that's stretching its neck out to eat your face. But, um, yeah, it's... I, I don't have extremely strong feelings about them because I think that the the typical Metroid design, the, the maybe even the stereotypical Metroid design, is, is what I still think of if I'm thinking of a Metroid. But um, I, I don't I don't dislike these. It's it's kind of neat that you can see on their uh, their bodies like where the 
blob is that would be a normal metroid like kind of how they evolved out of uh out of each other as a, as it were so um yeah kind of neat it seems to me that perhaps this is just another conceit to emulate a lot of the uh the alien universe as in the the life cycle and and really do that and that's kind of obviously evident as you see some of the sprite animations and going from that that kind of recognizable metroid sort of single cell organism style all the way through to the uh the the metroid queen but you know as you move between the alpha the gamma zeta omega and the queen obviously they've got different kind of attacks well do they really have different type of attacks i think that's something <laughs> perhaps need to, to have a discussion about but um i have to admit i i do i know leon mentioned that he thought that the the metroid design was a little bit daft um and and i don't necessarily agree with that i think there's a sort of a subtle threatening nature about this organism that's singly uh there to do one thing and that is suck the life force of a of whatever it is that it comes into contact with i think they did a couple of a couple of cool things um one uh, and that that goes back to the map design a little bit is uh they did some nice subtle environmental storytelling with that where um when you get towards the end of the game and you have only the the big omega metroids left those are the only life forms that you will encounter everything else has probably been killed by those omega metroids that populate those those last areas of the game i thought that was pretty cool and they do a couple interesting gameplay things um the first three uh, mutations um i mentioned it earlier right as soon as they get off screen they stop being a threat but the the omegas you can't uh, get them off screen they will always be uh, clamped their their position is clamped to to be inside the screen so you can't uh, really run away from them you can still leave the room but uh, as long as you're fighting them you can't escape them i thought that was pretty interesting yeah that that is very i mean i must admit it's something that i hadn't picked up on personally but it sort of makes a, a good deal of sense the um the the abiding thought that i have of fighting the metroids is because there's what, 58 of them or 52 sort of t- non-traditional metroid variations is it almost feels like they're going through the motions of having them in every different possible permeation of what environment they could be in yeah. so you might have an environment where spikes are there or de- destructible blocks are there and, and so it becomes a little bit not repetitive necessarily but again i use the term sweat the asset and i think that's probably what they wanted to do as part of this Aside from Metroids, obviously you have regular enemies, and and for my money, the the regular enemies display a lot more character and personality in this particular game than they did in the original Metroid, where they tend to move on the cardinal directions, and in some instances, just in a diagonal sense. There's things that look like they would appear on the planet and uh, have a, a form and a function within the the biomes that they they exist, and of course, there is uh, an optional boss now. For me, I, I wrote that this is an optional boss, Arachnus, because it is optional. The jump ball is just not a thing. You don't necessarily need it as part of the game, but it's one of uh, the only things that isn't a Metroid and isn't like an indigenous life form sort of scrub enemy in the game that's uh, of any interest. Um, any thoughts on on this, Johannes? Yeah, uh, you you needed it in the in the TAS because the spring ball gave a huge uh, speed bonus. Uh, there's this weird bug uh, in the game where if you either 
uh, fall from uh, a certain height uh, in, in morph ball form, or if you jump from the ground with the spring ball and then immediately activate the spider ball, um, the game will throw you to the left at great speed. Uh, it only works towards the left, not to the right. Uh, so it's not an intended intended thing. It's it's some some sort of bug. Um, but that was the the fastest uh, mode of uh, of locomotion basically in the game. So in in all the tasks tasks at least you needed it. It's a bit difficult to do uh, in real time. It still works, but I don't think it's that important in real time speedruns. I might be wrong. Um, but that was super interesting, and of course, I mean, the spring ball makes navigating those uh, morph ball mazes uh, just a lot faster. But yeah, calling them mazes is a bit much. <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. it's pretty straightforward where you have to go. So yeah, if you like the spring ball, it's cool. You can also, um, when you unmorph in midair, you can still jump. Uh, I think this is probably the only Metroid game where that works just like that. So you can maybe get to some places where you usually can't go to. But if you get the spring ball, you'll have to spy the ball anyway. So it's yeah. not that much of an With advantage. Th this tech was available in Metroid 1, but the condition was that you must release like forward momentum as you uh, okay. morph between mm -hmm. uh, ball and non-ball uh, yeah. to jump. Leah Arachnus, any thoughts? I didn't realize it was optional. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I guess it. It makes sense, but um, I think I would have had a very difficult time without the or the spring ball in some of the later bits, just because I did a lot of like jumping and then immediately switching to spider ball to like grab the wall above me. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I I think it's worth it for sure, and I, I he's not particularly difficult to find if I remember correctly. Uh, so yeah, not not the worst boss, and uh, get you some some pretty worthwhile rewards, in my opinion. A bit of a pain to fight as well, given that he is immune to to beam and missiles and can only be bombed. So it was just yet another reason that I thought, yeah, let let's not do this. We'll just uh, bomb jump in the traditional sense. So I'd like to touch on on the audio in this game, which I think is a real strong point for the for the the title. Uh, it is the only. Uh, non-spin-off Metroid game that doesn't feature the the kind of enigmatic permanent uh, Metroid theme known as Silence throughout the game. It's got its own main uh, credit theme, which is not terribly good. <laughs> I think it's it's worth saying. There's about a minute's worth of uh, of nothing before the actual plot comes in there, and you you start to see the the uh, the themes kind of emerge. And um, I mentioned this on the the original Metroid show that. I, it seems to me slightly odd that for a game that has such a, I don't know, maybe a, a, a sort of lineage of, of being quite a, almost like sinister and isolating experience, that it's got this really heroic theme um, as you emerge onto the planet. And this doesn't really kind of work for me. Um, I think as Super Metroid comes in, they start to realize the potential of the, the title that they've got. They start to make better use of the soundscape and, and have themes that are a bit more appropriate. Um, I seem to recall Mahil mentioned in the last show that um, this was not uncommon for games of, of that age, and it was to try and create some sense of like uplift and give the player a sense of empowerment. Um, Leah, do you have any thoughts on on the soundtrack in particular? I actually really like the soundtrack. I I agree that it can feel a little um, off kilter in some places, but um, yeah, I I I'm a kind of a sucker for Game Boy music. Um, 
and this this struck some pretty decent notes for me. It is it is quite different from the uh, original Metroid soundtrack, but uh, I I thought that it kept the spirit of that pretty well. Hmm. From the forum, Luke one hundred one two three writes, "I love the sound design in Metroid Two, from the music at the start that seems to denote the beginning of a grand adventure." to the eerie silence that follows as you descend deep into the cavernous interior of SR388. A lot of the sound effects I still remember vividly from my first playthrough. The Metroid battle music itself was also tense and unsettling. Yeah, I I like this because I think that is a a perfect description of of what the Metroid 2 soundscape is. There's some very awkward, dissonant music that just makes you feel like something isn't quite right. It's the sort of audible audible equivalent of perhaps something that's just designed to kind of trigger a, a sense of um, peril and uh, confusion that's in there. I, um, I, While I don't necessarily like the music in the game, um, with the exception to one or, or two um, tracks, I do think that the music helps to ground the player. So as you move into that central corridor, that uplifting song comes back into position. And and for me, perhaps it speaks to the way in which I kind of ground myself or I learn. But that musical cue was enough to give me a sense of, okay, now I know where I am. Yeah, I think that works perfectly. Central type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like a lot of the the areas have, have sounds that are not really pleasant to to listen to and i don't think they're supposed to be like you're you're meant to feel unwelcome in in those spaces and the the song contributes to that uh in an excellent way i think yeah. the hit noise yeah. is really unpleasant it sounds like just oh, a yeah. buzzer going off like <laughs> and Horrible. i yeah. i see that low health beeping is listed on the show notes and let mm-hmm. me tell you so the bad. beginning <laughs> of the game in particular before i got any extra energy tanks I kind of wanted to throw a controller. <laughs> that yeah, was not yeah. great. Did not love that. That that sound is never pleasant in any of the the Metro games, but I think it, for my money, it is at its worst <laughs> in this game. And and in that regards, it's doing its job most effectively. It's it's really harsh. Like I don't know like it's what weird. kind of wave it is. It's but weird it because like it, it gets it gets like lower Faster. as you lose mo- yeah but but it's also not as lo- like it's loudest i think maybe this was just a quirk of the the hardware that i was playing on but it was like loudest when you were at you know the highest amount of health that would trigger that and then it just kind of got faster and like lower as as it would continue on and you would lose more health i am not a fan all in all though i think it is a, an effective kind of soundscape and uh, really conveys the that kind of alien sense, not not capital A alien, but uh, lowercase a, the sense that you are somewhere where you perhaps aren't welcome or don't know, for that matter. So uh, let's move on to, to quickly have a discussion about the gameplay. Uh, a lot of the gameplay that it was uh, pertinent and prevalent in Metroid 1 returns from Metroid 2 with a, a few kind of notable additions. It keeps the same feel of Metroid 1, as far as I'm concerned, where you have very high jumping and very floaty jumps, which give that kind of series the way that it... the feeling that I think is there for me. And it's something that I kind of long for in the later series because I'm not a huge fan of that kind of twitchy jumping that you get as you go through the likes of Metroid Zero Mission onwards. New techniques involve the ability to crouch, which unfortunately wasn't available for very long in Metroid 1, but it gives you that second plane to to shoot on. You can also shoot downwards, which is something that was sorely missed in in Metroid 1. 
as well as some of the kind of more infrastructural changes like saving, uh, new specifically techniques in, in Metroid 2 include the spider ball, uh, the bounce ball. You have some new beams, including the spacer laser and the plasma beam. And the ice beam now no longer unfreezes an enemy when you make a second successful hit. There is uh, audio cues in the form of Metroid detectors, and uh, the Metroid detector kind of UI functionality that exists on the bottom of the screen. And then lastly, some quality of life kind of improvements, including missile refills and health refills that are available in many of the kind of core uh, chambers throughout the map. Those are um, godsend. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, we talked on and, and touched on easiness and difficulty and, and those things really kind of reinvent the game um itself and obviously it's something that's persisted as the series have gone along albeit in a different form slightly in those particular rooms but it is something that makes the game a lot more appealing and apposite than than metroid one is and certainly something that kind of um gives you a little bit of a nudge when you find one of those they're usually slightly obfuscated by the the map in some way but it's always a good sign to see that there's one there's one there yeah yeah, so um, I guess starting off in general, like how how do you find the gameplay? Do you think it's a strong game in that regard? Do you think it uses that kind of uh, skill set and the tool set well? Yeah, I I did. I um, it it does feel like the original Metroid, like Metroid One. Um, I I did not have many, if any, really problems where I was trying to get Samus to do something that I thought she should be able to do and she wasn't if I, I mean that's a roundabout way of saying that the control is responsive but that's that's kind of where i'm going with that i i appreciate that we can crouch um that is useful and also the uh, the ice beam thing i actually only used the ice beam i never switched to anything else because i found it so useful that you could freeze things and kill them, and now they won't go uh, back to being normal after the second hit. So, uh, yeah, I I just used that all the way through, which probably handicapped me in some of the uh, in some of the Metroid fights, but it worked. Yeah, same for me with the ice beam. There's basically no reason to to use anything else. And um, I mean, we we said it before, right? The game is not that hard, um, and I think. Uh, compared to NES Metroid, just the the fact that uh, everything works and there's it's not that janky, that's more important than the actual abilities uh, that your character gains. Like just the, the ability to just move like you actually want to move. And you're somewhat hindered by the zoomed-in perspective in, in some cases, where you still run into stuff uh, that you didn't intend to. But other than that, it just works really well. We also have the the benefit of hindsight here, where we know that the only thing that's going to affect the the Metroids and the inevitable Metroid confrontation is the ice beam as well. So really, if you yeah if you get any other beam, it it's a bit of a false economy. You're gonna to have to switch back at some point, and and luckily there is a a very handy ice beam placement right at the end of the game, just to give you a bit of a Lego if you need some help. As well as a health refill and a missile refill right at the end there. That was, mm-hmm. I, I I had the ability to do save states on the Retron, but I only used one. I was trying to not use any. Uh, I used one at the very end because I, I had a little bit of trouble with the final boss. And um, so I, I made a save state where I had cleared out all of the Metroids. I had gone back and uh, and refilled my health and refilled my missiles and 
saved. So really all I was doing was just making it so that I didn't have to space jump up to the top and then walk through those empty corridors where I'd already killed all the Metroids. Um, but yeah, full disclosure, I did use one save state. Yeah. I think um, the the one thing that I personally feel, and this is obviously very personal to my opinion, is um, that there is perhaps a little bit too much dependence on both the spider ball as a means to try and explore and latterly the the space jump. The, there's so many instances where it really behooves you to use the space jump to get around all the spider ball and any other way of trying to negotiate around the map just becomes kind of redundant. And towards the end, of course, you have to do a really, not complicated necessarily, but uh, obnoxious is perhaps the right way to describe it, um, a series of space jumps to be able to move up to the, the final chamber. I would like to see less of that and perhaps something a little bit more... Um, I don't know, just complementary to the other set of skills that you get in order to make sure that you're not just using the same kind of forms of movement. And it, it is another one of those instances of Metroid game where the moment you get screw attack, I think everything else just becomes essentially trivialized. You really don't need to do a great deal. Uh, the space jump is the, the only technique that is a bit janky, right? It's Sometimes it just throws you out of it and you don't know why exactly that happened. I agree. Yeah, I, I actually did not use the screw attack as much as I did in the first Metroid. Um, but yeah, I'm just not very good at space jumping, it turns out. Uh, not sure why that is. I got better because you have to, but um, yeah, it the, the timing is a little weird. I, I enjoy that there's absolutely no no tutorial whatsoever to let you know exactly <laughs> how to do it. So it's a bit of trial and error. But luckily, you know, approaching this game to what, 20... 30 years after it was uh first relevant um means that you have a lot of um a lot of prior knowledge to be able to draw upon so before we we kind of touch on some of the the speed running toolkit i'd like to refer to luke 10123's uh update from the forum about how the game feels in which he writes the only metroidvania games i've played are metroid fusion and bloodstained ritual of the night i've never played the original but i've really struggled with control and samus in this one the jumping feels very floaty if that makes sense admittedly the game takes place of a world that likely has different gravity to what i'd expect but it made platforming dodging enemies very tricky that and how temperamental the space jump is one thing i've definitely missed from fusion was the ability to aim diagonally i found having either to jump up to the exact height of moving enemies or maneuver directly below them quite annoying and fiddly and often led me to taking damage Unfortunately, the Metroid fights themselves can be a bit repetitive, and it's disappointing to discover a new stage of the life cycle only to find the battle is nearly identical to the last one. The strategy never seems to change. Tank hits, spam missiles, combat against SR-388's local fauna isn't great either. I often find myself shooting a millimetre too high or low, and sometimes it's impossible to drop down to one of the game's many shafts and pits without landing on some creature that means you harm. And if you take too much damage, you risk reaching the point of having to grind for health pickups or backtracking miles to secret refill areas. So I think for me that that's a fairly kind of fair assessment of the of the actual combat in the game, as it were. The amount of times that you find yourself in a position where you just whiff the enemy very kind of acutely, and separately with the the Metroids themselves, there's, there really isn't a great deal to distinguish the threat between one stage of the evolution and the other. I think there's certain enemies that add slight changes in terms of like the attack, or let's say the the patterns upon which you need to to fire a missile. But yeah, other than that, it, it isn't necessarily the most kind of um, versatile and and well versed um, fl- like suite of 
of different enemy types. I would agree with that. It's they're they take more hits. Like it's it's they're slightly different shapes. Maybe they're a little bit more aggressive, but I mean, you're you're either they're either shooting fireballs at you or sometimes they're like spamming electricity at you. Like that's kind of your limit on uh on the differentiation between a lot of the metroids. I think the omega Until is the you get only, to the end and then they're super fast one. and yeah. annoying. Yeah, exactly. That that Omega, right? It also has that quote-unquote trick where you uh, can uh, damage it from behind and it, it takes higher damage and things like that. That's the, the only really interesting change-up in the formula. Mm. How about the, the Queen Metroid? Because that, that is an interesting mm. final boss mm-hmm. and it's something that they actually do do a, a, like a little bit of um, thought went into that to try and make it um, somewhat different. For, for me... I know that there's multiple ways of defeating it, but for me, my tactic was very much a case of screw attack the um, the balls or the projectiles that it fires out and then just spam it with missiles in the mouth as it makes a lower attack. But I understand there's a, a different way of defeating it that's perhaps a little bit more um, cool, <laughs> let's say. Maybe a little bit more interesting. Um, did anybody use the, the bombing technique? Back nope. in the day, I did, yeah. When, when I first played, for sure, because I, I thought that's what you had to do. Um, now I know that's not the case. You can just kill it with missiles, and it actually doesn't have iframes, so you can just spam as quickly as possible. Uh, yeah. I thought it was an interesting boss. Yeah, I mean that that secret uh, technique with uh, rolling into its stomach and, and laying a bomb there that was pretty cool. And certainly something that's kind of been brought through into the rest of the series as well. So that it came in at this particular time in the game is kind of impressive to me. It shows that they're thinking a little bit more laterally about their game design. So, for you know, we we talked, I think, a little bit about um, the potential for speedrunning as as part of Metroid 1. And I think, obviously, we acknowledge that Metroid has like a huge space in the speedrunning community and I, I kind of have arrived at the conclusion that metroid 2 is perhaps no different because there's so many quirks and glitches from the speedrunning and, and taz world that you can see that's available from here the one that um that i think is is most interesting is the the use of kind of damage and, and that it resets your position i'm kind of speaking out of turn here johannes because i think this is perhaps more your domain but I, I wonder if you can kind of take us through a, a quick canter through some of the the techniques that you're able to yeah. use in your your taz yeah, with pleasure. Um, there's a couple of interesting things. I think the the main difference uh, to to some of the the other Metroid games or other Metroidvania games, we talked about it before. There's no real sequence breaking. There's only this one um, uh, lava uh, corridor that you can go through early, and other than that, you're just going by the designed route. Um, so it, it really comes down to optimization and. Optimization then again comes down to mostly locomotion and Metroid fights. And for locomotion, it's things like um, you want to be jumping as little as possible because that's the slowest form of movement. You want to be using that spider ball uh, throw glitch uh, because that's the the fastest form of movement. And then there is those micro uh, optimizations like cutting corners uh, where the game pushes you down a couple pixels and things like that that are only valid for, for tool-assisted. Um, Metroid fights are the, the hardest to optimize uh, because they're super random. You know how those those alphas uh, dodge around uh, totally erratically. Um, 
I don't think anybody knows the the exact rules uh, by which they abide by. Um, and I think for real time runs, you can't really do much there ex except maybe trap them uh, in a corner or something. Yeah, suit, uh, movement uh, again. So for example, the basic suit movement is slower than the Varia suit uh, movement and morph ball movement is just exactly as fast as Varia suit movement. So you're going to see before a speedrunner collects the Varia suit, they're going to be in morph ball form uh, as much as possible. But that's basically it, right? It, it just comes down to, to optimizing those things. There are no no big um no big changes in routing or anything fascinating i think um you know the looking at the the kind of speedrun.org kind of catalogs excuse me speedrun.com catalog the, there's fewer categories and that's evidence of mm -hmm. the fact that there's less kind of going on in terms of glitches and such and i think it's kind of interesting personally because uh there's a purity about the the non-glitch speedruns that really showcase um some of the narrative of the game um as we've seen with friend of the show ben college's uh one credit classics runs totally yeah there's one big uh glitch and that's probably also a, a category i don't know if it's uh that prevalent in real time running it definitely was in TUS, um, in the TUS world. There's the select glitch. Um, it's a very uh, simple to execute uh, glitch. You have to press select uh, as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, so just select and uh, and unselect uh, missiles while you're moving. Uh, so if you're moving left or right or falling down um, and you press uh, you press select. You can do that on actual hardware. It takes a couple of tries, maybe, but it totally works. Um, the game has a small amount of lag, some hiccup in in loading. Not sure what causes it. Maybe it's the, the sound effect playing or something. Um, and because you're moving the screen, it causes uh, certain tiles of the map to not load correctly. And you can do things like make walls disappear. So you can walk out of the screen to the left or right or to the bottom where you're not supposed to, and you'll end up outside of the the intended map or the designed map uh, in what is, ex is essentially maps filled with, or rooms filled with random uh, memory chunks. Uh, it looks like you'd imagine, uh, completely a nightmare. random yeah completely random tiles but it's deterministic it's always the same so you can make actually plan a, a speedrun route uh, around this and those are the fastest uh, tool assisted runs but of course they end up ending super uh, looking super weird you get metroids that are made up uh, of numbers uh, from the ui and things like that um, and is it a similar story trying to go back inbounds as it were exactly yeah, yeah exactly it's, I mean, it's, I'm, fa I'm, it's fascinating, but it's you, you watch it once and <laughs> you know what it's about. It's super weird. And out of curiosity, what's the kind of difference between a a real time run and a, a Taz run in terms of the the time difference? I'm not sure because that I left that that Taz uh, or I stopped becoming active there after I did a couple of runs, and I know there have been huge optimizations afterwards. But the difference is is not that big because mm. it's only those optimizations, right? So it might be five minutes, might be 10 minutes, but it's not going to be something where you can, thanks to 
having task abilities uh, change the route, so it doesn't really change that much. Hmm. Indeed. Interesting. I mean, I'm certainly going to have a look after the recording and try and pass yeah, out. Check exactly it out. The There's some cool stuff. Yeah. Always fun to see somebody tear the game apart and put it back together again. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, obviously, just to sort of like come to the end of 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 this particular section, what I really want to do is is have a think about the the legacy of Metroid Two and and how it's perceived in the community and and whether or not um we kind of feel that it's sort of justified and it's sort of black sheep of the 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 franchise. Um, obviously, it's a, a game that's kind of not been. Uh, necessarily brought forward in the traditional sense. We obviously had the AM2R remake that was, uh, well, I don't know what happened to it. I think it might have been shut down by Nintendo or like a, a DCMA yeah. cease and desist was issued. Mm-hmm. And then the more legitimate um, remake from Mercury Steam, who have obviously just received uh, release Metro Dead, excuse me. It seems to me that Metro 2 has a little bit of a, a kind of um, ire in the the franchise and it's certainly one that nobody else seems to want to to kind of uh champion in in that regards and i just wonder if it's something that you feel is is justified um on the whole or you have any insights in this i don't i mean i don't think that any of us are really gonna say yeah it's terrible i i i don't i don't think that's that's currently where the the feel of the room is but um yeah i i i can understand why um it might be a bit um, difficult to get back into if you are more used to the later entries in this series and just into modern gaming in general. It does some things that I think are very right in in the way that they continue to show up in other titles in this series. And then it does some things that are maybe not as indisputably good. I still think that it's uh, a good experience and that it is, uh, I'm, I'm starting to sound like I'm doing my wrap up. I'm not yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it deserves some of the, uh, like, I was surprised. Let me put it that way. I was surprised uh, at how well the game played, given that I was not really expecting a whole lot out of this game, given that it was kind of not panned exactly, but it 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 did have a lot more negative feedback that I had personally heard than perhaps Metroid One did. Mm. It, for me, it occupies that Mario Two position in in the timeline mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. like super important in terms of what came afterwards, and it's like a beautiful segue from Metroid One, which is like to to my mind like an incredible game but a very kind of superficial and unsophisticated game. And it's one of those situations where, like, the, the for, for a game that is as kind of disregarded in the Metroid-like sort of pantheon, it's perhaps the most important narratively ga- game of them all, and, and one that's ironically perhaps the the kind of um, sveltest in terms of what narrative is there. So it, it's just this strange kind of... Uh, Occupies the same same kind of strange place that Super Mario Two does in that regards. It it pioneered a lot of things um, that, especially the Metro series, uh, kept doing afterwards, and it improved on a lot of things that the first Metroid did. But at the same time, it tried some new things that maybe weren't that uh, well conceived. So yeah, it's it's a perfect transition. 
between the, those more, more well-regarded uh, games. And and it's interesting as well at the point of release because of course this came out uh, around about the same time as the Super Nintendo did, and Super Metroid wouldn't follow for three years after that. But it's it's kind of fascinating to see how much of Super Metroid is captured in this game when compared to the original Metroid that is is just way way less kind of grand in scope. Moving on to some forum feedback, uh, Johannes, can you take Belmont zero three? Yeah, sure. So he says, uh, or they say, I played this game as a child. While I never completed it, I was maybe seven at the time. I do have a clear memory of playing it in the car as my parents were shopping for whatever and having the sun dropping in the sky. What a bummer non-backlit screens were back in the day. That being said, I enjoyed the game as a child. It was an awesome portable game for a kid that loved Super Metroid more than pretty much any game. Man, I I feel that acutely. (laughs) <laughs> like playing on a non-backlit Game Boy. It was yep. suddenly aware of just how difficult it was to actually find the right kind of uh, re- reflection of light to be able to trigger that. <laughs> we used to do a... Um, I have relatives who live in West Virginia, and that's about a nine-hour drive from uh, where my parents live. And uh, yeah, I can remember having a Game Boy and going to visit the grandparents and like just, you know, it, it would get into the sundown and I'd be trying to like angle my Game Boy. My parents are like, put that away. You can't do that. You're <laughs> going to ruin your eyes. I'm like, no, but I can still see. It's fine. These must parents. Yeah. Can you take Luke 10123's correspondence, please? Uh, and they say, I remember nicking this game off my older brother when I was a kid. I never knew what was going on or what I was supposed to do. I would get lost very easily and probably only made it about 1% of the way through before I'd give up and go back to Pokemon Blue or Link's Awakening. But I was always curious about this alien world I'd only ever glimpsed, and I loved the music, so it was something I'd occasionally return to, only to bounce off it again. With the upcoming podcast, I thought I'd have one last attempted playthrough using the same cartridge I played with some 25 years ago. However, this time I'd have the benefit of wisdom, the skills I've developed from many years of gaming, and most importantly, a map and a walkthrough, because let's face it, a lot of games from this era weren't always great at signposting where you were supposed to go and what you were supposed to do. Although in this case, that was probably the point. I was also playing on my Game Boy Advance SP this time around, rather than the original Game Boy we had in the house, and I have to admit, the SP does wonders for this game. It runs much smoother and looks a lot better with basic coloring rather than the ugly green palette of the first Game Boy. The main thing I missed, however, was a map. More so in my original attempts when I was young, as now I have the benefit of the internet to help out, but some of the environments look and feel very similar, so getting completely lost and unsure where the next upgrade or Metroid is feels like an inevitability. The small number of save points throughout the game doesn't help matters. If you're lost or far away from one and you need to put the game down, say if your battery was running out, you were scuppered. Even though I own the game, I wish now that I'd sought out an emulated version that could save the game state anywhere. The counter that is a permanent part of the UI telling you how many Metroids still infest the planet was a great piece of design. It adds a sense of foreboding as the Metroids get stronger and more dangerous, all while the game is telling you that you still have dozens ahead of you. Also, the way the final areas feel desolate and lifeless as you approach the Omega and Queen Metroids layers give you a sense of foreboding as you realize the Metroids have killed almost every living thing in the area, reinforcing how dangerous they are and why you need to finish the job. Combined with the sound design, bleak backgrounds, and maze-like level design, Metroid 2 does an incredible job at making the player feel a sense of isolation and loneliness. After 25 years, I finally beat Metroid 2 with a time of 3 hours and 7 minutes. Pretty good. Although I knew how the game ended, I was actually surprised by the relief I felt as I finally reached the surface and the black background of the caves gave way to the stars above. 
but now I've done it, I really have no reason or desire to play it again. But I'm glad I've beaten it the once. I don't think I would recommend seeking out the original game if you wanted to play today. Even with the fan remake, AM2R shut down by Nintendo, emulated versions, or better yet, the 3DS remake would surely be a better option. There is, however, a lot to admire about Metroid 2. Considering the limitations of the hardware, it does a great job in creating a lonely, foreboding atmosphere and repackaging and upgrading the original Metroid framework into a handheld. However, the confusing level design, lack of save points, and slightly janky combat mean I probably wouldn't recommend this game to most people today. Amazing for its time, but even within the Metroid series, it's been surpassed in every way since. Interesting. So there's uh, one advocate for the remake, and I'm sensing this mm. is probably going to be a pervasive feeling throughout. Moving on, Deadpool Negative from the forum. I still remember seeing the announcement in Nintendo Power with a big centerfold poster of Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. She's back, the Metroids are back, and they're on Game Boy? Well, okay. And um, he, he makes a point of pointing us towards a, the, the post of um, a Metroid poster in which Samus has, quote, boob armor. And she absolutely certainly does. It's a very weird version of Metroid's armor. <laughs> I've done it. She's I've a girl, done it. You know. I've done what Leon did last time. <laughs> of Samus's armor, excuse me, in which um, she definitely does have ladies' armor on there. Clearly, this is before the kind of brand guidelines were, were put together. But um, seek that out if you're interested. Anyway, he continues, I eagerly picked up the game in the fall of 1991, and I was immediately thrilled to one of the best pieces of theme music I've ever heard since, well, the original Metroid theme. Seriously, that theme song in the early areas of the game is an absolute banger. The further I got, the more I felt disappointed. While the original Metroid isn't perfect, it has a visual imagination, and the world of Zebes felt varied, or as varied as a NES game from 1987 could be. By contrast, the world of SR388 is bland and samey, Granted, I suppose I'm being unfair to a Game Boy game, but the structure of it felt, well, more organised, and as simple compared to the strange mazes and nooks and crannies of Zebes. The game played well, but I re never really felt the urge to finish it. 30 years ago, I ranked it as one of my biggest gaming disappointments of all time. However, playing this again for the podcast on my trusty 3DS virtual console, I found myself warming to it quite a bit. As others have pointed out, the ticking clock of the Metroid counter adds to the tension especially when the Metroid fights are more chaotic than they were in the original. Moving around felt better than it did in the Game Boy, and while combat isn't quite as good as it was in the NES original, it's solid enough. Or maybe I'm getting soft in my old age. I hope we'll actually beat it this time. Granted, if you want to play this chapter in the history of Metroid, I would definitely recommend you go with Mercury Seam's Samus Returns before the return of Samus, but it's better than I remember. Uh, Johannes, can you take uh, Kasuga-san, please? Yeah, sure. They say, and this was the first video game my grandparents quote-unquote bought for me. It had been getting too difficult for them to keep up on getting presents for all of the grandkids, so they gave up and just gave us money to spend on gifts with the stipulation that we had to show them what we got with the money. My brother and I, of course, immediately used that for video games. He got a copy of Kid Icarus for the Game Boy, and I got a copy of Metroid 2, and my love, for the, my love of the Metroid series began there. I had played the original Metroid, but at my young age, it was a bit too obtuse for me. Despite the grayscale of the Game Boy, this game looked better to me and played better, and it finally clicked. It could have also helped a bit by Samus being a regular character in some of the Nintendo comics at the time as well. I remember spending hours combing every little nook and grammy of the game, uh, hunting for secrets. I mastered bomb jumping to reach the ceilings of the wide open areas of the map. 
I know young me got stuck in a few areas trying to find the last Metroid, so I could delve deeper into SL388. It all paid off with that last battle with the Queen Metroid. The baby Metroid, at the end, was a nice touch that stuck with me and paid off in Super Metroid. It always amazes me how early, how early on Nintendo seemed to master building connections to its world and characters, utilizing things as simple as making you care about a few pixels on a screen through clever animation and staging. I love that baby Metroid, and anyone that tries to hurt it will meet the business end of Samus' arsenal. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, reading through some of these correspondence, it seems as though the theme that seems to be emerging is the challenge in, in defeating it back in the day and the sense of this was a game that wasn't necessarily meant to be completed uh, or was so impenetrable that it couldn't be completed when compared to, to like, a very, like, pertinent issue at the moment to do with, like, difficulty in games and whether or not it's necessary to actually be in a position to be able to defeat it. So it's really interesting to see people reflect upon that and actually overcome some of those... Uh, historical barriers that they perhaps would have felt when they were were much younger indeed so let's move on to the three word reviews uh on the day of recording we usually post a twitter requesting for three word reviews so if you see a game that you've been playing and you have uh, some insights or uh, some funny witticisms that you'd like to add please do go on twitter and actually contribute so leah can you take us away please sure Brugilis says bb soundtrack slaps and that beat punk says, need more batteries. Bearfish Pie says, warning, roid rage. Uh, that's a apostrophe uh-huh. roid for metroid. Hypnocrit says, spider ball spelunking. Jason D. Smith says, so very misunderstood. Freezing Inferno says, ambient, terrifying noise. Identity GS says, one cute baby. Matt WBT says, Dummy Thick Samus. I'm going to need someone to explain that to me. I'll, t- I'll, I'll send you a link, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Kinerance's own Darren Gargat, who couldn't make the show, unfortunately, through illness, says, Where the map? And One Credit Classic says, Swerve this one. Oh, Ben. No, no, don't <laughs> swerve this one. It's worth it. I'm going to need someone to explain that to me. Is that like a British thing? Like, or am yeah. I just old? It could we, be either one. We may never know. Okay, so uh, <laughs> let's let's progress with our summaries. Leah, um, obviously, I think we all kind of fall within the same category, and it, it's kind of customary for us to go in order of uh, who likes at least to who likes at most, but uh, it's going to be difficult for us to do it in this one, so I wonder if you can take it away. Yeah, so I, I do like Metroid 2. I, um, we didn't g- go into um, the remake because, uh, as we mentioned before, I think there will probably be a separate show on that sometime in the future. Um, but my main thing about it is I think that they're different games. And I had played the remake previously. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had not played this yet. And I'm really glad that I did because I ended up getting along pretty well with it. I would recommend it if you have a map and maybe a slightly modern way of playing it, like uh, like a Retron or an emulator or something. Um, but it sounds like it's still perfectly playable on the, the Game Boy if you do decide to do it that way. Would still recommend the map, though. That That's kind of important, in my opinion, uh, unless you're... Uh, 
you're just really a, a really strict cartographer um in that case you know have have fun but uh for me i think that the map was a pretty necessary part of it i like the music i think that it looks really nice blown up on a tv and colorized even um it it uh it was a fun five or so hours that I spent with it. And I think I would probably play it again. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to get into speedrunning it, but uh, I enjoyed my time with it. A little bit of trouble on the last boss, but that was, um, I don't know, that's probably at least partially just me not really having reflexes. Um, so yeah, do recommend. Uh, however, you can kind of get a hold of it. Uh, it, uh, I believe, it's on the 3DS Virtual Console, and also cartridges are not that hard to come by. Uh, they're not the most common thing, but uh, yeah, they're around. So, uh, do recommend. Good stuff. Lovely. I'm going to go next um, and leave Johannes with the difficult of mopping up uh, as much of the enthusiasm that remains in the room. Um, so to me, it is wild that this game exists on a Game Boy. Um, I always have this kind of mental impression in my head that Game Boy games are always much more kind of lean, much shorter, like much more punchy experiences. So to see that there's this fully fleshed out Metroid game that could potentially and probably will last you as a five hour experience is, is something that I find very difficult to get my head around. I mentioned at the beginning that I actually played the 3DS version of, um, of the remake um, beforehand, and it was a game that I genuinely didn't really like. Uh, and we may go into that as we kind of maneuver through the series, but it left me with a sense of, of trepidation uh, about going through to the original, which, you know, I had played before, but I felt it was a bit um, oblique and, and complicated and, and much less um, much less advanced, let's say, and sophisticated than uh, than what the remake had. But actually, it's a pleasant surprise. The animation is crisp. It's smooth as you like. It really doesn't drop any frames, and it's a pleasure to play. The uh, design of the enemies and the design of Samus and the ship and such is all on point. Like, it's beautiful to behold, and the fact that it's running on a Game Boy screen just makes it feel all the better. It's not without its problems, of course. You know, there's limitations in the game, the, the camera being so zoomed in feels very unusual for a Metroid game, but don't let that put you off. It's worth persisting through that, and you'd likely to have a very similar experience to the one that you had if, you, if you're if you a fan of Super Metroid and some of the games that followed on from from that kind of line of uh, line of um, the, the, the Metroid franchise. It's subtly different enough from Metroid that makes it a very different experience. And I think that's worth pointing out. I don't think I would recommend it to anybody who's extremely fond of Metroid because it's not going to give you the same sense of um, accomplishment that going through that kind of earlier game in the franchise would give. But I think it's worth kind of seeking out if you've got any interest in the plot because as we went through, uh, when we when we went through the, the story summary, it, it's probably the most pivotal event in the, the Metroid series and seeing it in, its, uh, in the form that it was intended when it was first released is something that I think is really, really worth doing. Um, I completed the game on the first instance and thought I wasn't going to go back to it until uh, Nick Suters from the Canerance community contacted me to say that he noticed some dead pixels in my Game Boy. And he offered to fix it for me. And I was really grateful for him doing that. It's an exceptionally kind thing to do. And when he returned it back, the only thing I could think about playing was more Metroid 2 and experience it once more. And I think that just goes to show just how affectionate I am towards the game. Um, I would recommend that everybody plays it, even if you have some trepidations, even if you have some reservations about what it, you think it might be, 
I still think it's worth going back. And if you've got an evening to commit and you've got the map and you've got the wherewithal and the, all of the time and the knowledge to do it, you're going to have a great time. Johannes. Well said, you two. Yeah. Um, so this this uh, game definitely has a special place in my heart uh, because, um, as I said in, in the introduction, I did play the original uh, Metroid on the on the NES a little bit, but I never finished it. I never owned it myself. That was always at a friend's place. And then this was the first uh, Metroid game uh, that I owned myself, and it was to me. Uh, the second uh, place of introduction into a series uh, that I adore uh, and into a genre which I love. Um, I'm definitely looking at this place with uh, gray, greenish tinted uh, nostalgia uh, glasses. Um, but I think we we heard a little bit from the from the correspondence um, that. Maybe a bit surprisingly, uh, people who bounced off the game uh, back in the day um, were able to enjoy it nowadays. Uh, maybe because you know you have that experience of newer uh, Metroidvania titles or newer Metroid games, and you can see the um, the roots of those uh, games in in Metroid Two. Um, so yeah, maybe it's an easier uh, recommendation than uh, I originally thought. At, at, at the very least. Without reservations, you can recommend it to people that are interested uh, in that that sort of thing. Um, if you're into the genre and want to know where where some of those uh, conventions come from, and certainly for the Metroid story, of course, um, simple as it may be in this game, uh, I, I still think it's it's pretty effective. Um, there are various ways of of playing this game as we have heard uh I, I still think it plays fine on original hardware or maybe slightly modified hardware uh just beware that your batteries might run out uh, before you can find a save point um otherwise yeah if you want to get it in on one of the platforms where you can do things like save states uh that's perfectly fine um yeah it's uh it's a very interesting game, and I still think it's a good game. If you if you're even even in the slightest uh, interested in in those roots of of a genre, go check it out. Beautifully put. Would you recommend that anybody picks it up as a Taz experiment? Um, as a Taz, I think it's there's not mu that much to to still be done unless some new uh, tricks or glitches uh, are found, which can of course happen. As a speedrunner, I don't know, I never speedrun it myself, but it might be interesting in that it, it is one of those really optimization-heavy games uh, where it's kind of unlikely that anything major is going to going to change there, unlike um, some other uh, games in the genre or in the franchise where at any moment it could happen that your run becomes completely outdated uh, due to major uh, changes in there. So it might be interesting. Um, the speedrunning scene for this game, um, as I said, I'm not too familiar with it, but I reckon it's probably smaller than for Metroid and Super Metroid. But it's definitely there. So yeah, I think it could be could be cool. Might be an introduction to those, uh, at least uh, the later bigger games. Indeed. Yeah. Well said. 
So that's it, Metroid 2. And I'm sure for the Metroid fans, you'll be very pleased to know that that's us caught up and ready to take on Metroid, uh, Super Metroid, actually, in Volume 11, hopefully. We'll wait to see what falls out of the next year's worth of shows, but I'm sure it's something that's going to be on Leon's mind, no doubt. So it remains for me, Rich, to thank Leah and Johannes, as well as our correspondents, plus, of course, you for listening. Johannes, while we have the floor, I wonder if you've got anything you'd like to share with the listeners. Do you have any projects in plan or anything you want to point towards? Yeah, well, to do some uh, shameless self-promotion. Um, I don't know if Michiel uh, mentioned it on the show already. He probably did. Uh, so him and me, we're working on uh, our own game at, at the moment. It's uh, a shmup, uh, a SCG, a shooting uh, shoot 'em up uh, 2D side-scrolling, uh, inspired by the likes of Gradius, UN Squadron, and what have you. Um it's going to come out soon on Itch and then later Steam and Switch and maybe more consoles. If you want to follow us and check out our game, it's uh, on Twitter uh, at HitPStudio. So that's H-I-T-P Studio. Um, and you can find all the YouTube and Itch.io links and in the future Steam and all that on there. Good stuff. I mean, I think all of the the Kanerman's team follow this with bated breath, and we know that uh, it's been at the uh, EGX floor this this week, and hopefully it's something exactly, that uh, yeah. gets released with uh, much aplomb, and I look forward to playing it myself. Not going to be long now. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, actually, we're going to... Um, tomorrow, there is a video coming out by the excellent uh, YouTuber Shmup Junkie, uh, he did a preview of our game um, a couple of months back, and that was really excellent. And tomorrow he's going to follow up on that, including uh, a lot of other uh, shmups in production. And we're going to announce the release date on there. Wonderful. So next time in issue 491, join Leon, Carl, and John as Kane and Rince begin the journey with Lara, not Laura Croft, in Eidos and Core Design's 1990 sensation Tomb Raider. <laughs>